Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, if I have not met you before, you're new to the church. My name is Steve Kamer. I am on staff here at the church. I lead our college ministry as well as our seminary ministry. And our senior pastor this morning is away. He celebrated, I'm sure, the homecoming of his mother this past week as she had passed away the week before. And we, we mourn with them, but we know that he celebrated as well as she went home. So he is now taking a couple weeks of much-deserved time off so you can keep them in your prayers. I'm sure he would appreciate that. Uh, we have been going through all year a series on the idea of kingdom-centered prayer. We have, with the, with the goal that our hearts would be so captivated by a vision of God's kingdom that we would come before him begging for him to bring it into our world. And during the first half of the year, we looked at what the kingdom of God looks like. We went through many scriptures that described what it will look like when Jesus returns and brings his kingdom in all of its glory, when he brings the new heavens and the new earth and death is wiped out forever and mourning and sickness and all the things that are bad and suffering in our world are wiped out forever. And he brings in full joy, peace, all the things that we were meant to have. This will be our eternity. We looked in depth at that. And during the second half of the year, we have been looking at examples of prayers in Scripture that show us what it looks like to pray kingdom-centered prayer. And in our passage this morning, Nehemiah does just that. You know, our family, our, our little family of five, my wife Kendra and our three boys, Owen, Teo, and Kai, we, we're known to be, uh, we get a little bit crazy about things. We can be kind of passionate about stuff. And some of the things we're passionate about can get kind of quirky. Two of them are uh, In-N-Out Burger and Monster Jam Monster Trucks. I don't need to say a lot about In-N-Out Burger. It's the best there is. But Monster Jam Monster Trucks. Monster Jam is kind of the NFL of monster trucks, if you will. And it's some of the best monster trucks that you've ever seen. And we've been into this for quite a few years. We've followed them to see their shows all over the country. We've seen them at the World Arena. We've seen them at the Pepsi Center. We've gone to Las Vegas four times for the World Finals, which is like the Super Bowl of monster trucks. We, we even went out to California to see them and we brought our youngest Kai when he was about one year old. We brought him out there to a Monster Jam show. We had to put cotton over his ears and a bandana over his head so that the, that the noise wouldn't damage him. Somebody caught a picture of it and he won Monster Jam Fan of the Week. <laughs> On my YouTube channel, uh, the most viewed video I have at 503,000 views is a video of my two oldest sons going through their little Matchbox Monster Jam Monster Truck cars. Kids watch it over and over again. It's really weird. But all that's to say is I know a lot about Monster Jam. And there are drivers in Monster Jam who are way better than some of the other drivers. There are some of these people who will hit the jumps, these three-story jumps, at full throttle, going as fast as they can. They're not afraid to hit the big jumps. They're not afraid to wreck their trucks. And there's one family in particular who stands heads and tails above the rest. It's the Anderson family. Dennis, Ryan, and Adam, they drive the grave digger trucks. You've maybe heard of the grave digger trucks. They're the best. And particularly Ryan Anderson, he's even better than the others. And he will hit these things. He will go up on his two wheels, drive around the stadium, hit his brakes, go up on his front two wheels, which is called a stoppy, and go backwards on front two wheels, which is called a moonwalk, hit a jump, 
go flying and finish it with, yes, a backflip in a monster truck. A backflip, I know. It's kind of, we were there the first time they ever performed one in a competition. And it's amazing. And you think about these guys and you look at them and this is exactly what we want a Monster Jam truck driver to be. He's the perfect example of what we travel across the country to see. In the same way, as we look at this prayer in Nehemiah, I remember the first time I read it to study for the sermon. I, uh, I, after I finished, I kind of sat back in my chair, it rolled back a little bit, and I was like, wow. This is exactly what we want to see in a kingdom-centered prayer. This is exactly what we can learn on how to pray for the kingdom to come into our world. Nehemiah here recognizes that we are totally dependent on God for everything. That's why he prays. He comes before the Lord in repentance. And he teaches us how to pray that the kingdom will come in by praying for success and favor as he looks for the kingdom to spread and the people of Israel to be restored. Firstly, Nehemiah understands that he's desperate for God to come through. In short, for the people of Israel, things were pretty bad. The people of Israel are in exile. They've been in exile for 70 years, living in Babylon, far from the promised land, under Persian rule. Exile, as we see in our passage, it was, it was kind of the last straw of judgment. It was one of the worst things that could happen to the people of Israel. And I think it's a little bit hard for us to, to picture this, but being in the promised land, being in Jerusalem, was critical to them because it meant that the people of Israel were living in the constant presence of God. They had him in the temple and they could always go there to be in his presence. The promised land was the land that they had been brought to, that they had seen conquered, that they had seen miracle after miracle and it represented God's provision to them. And to be taken out of it was to be cut off from God, was to be in their minds forsaken. So things were really bad and he understood it. The Persian king Cyrus had begun to let people go back to Israel, to Jerusalem and begin to repair the city. The temple at this point had been rebuilt, but they were still not finished. And Nehemiah receives this report that things are still in bad shape. The wall and the gate still lie in ruin, and it says that they were in great trouble and disgrace. Not only were they defenseless, but they would have been a mockery to the nations around them. It was no small thing. Nehemiah knew it was bad. And it says, as soon as I heard these things, these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continually fasted and prayed before God of heaven. He went to God because he knew that if God didn't show up, there was going to be no restoration. He was that desperate. He knew he needed God desperately, 100%. And I think we can identify with him here. It's not hard for us when things go really bad and we feel really desperate for us to pray. We do it all the time. If you, if you get that phone call that someone has been in a car accident and they're in the hospital, you are going to start praying immediately. It's easy. It comes naturally. We recognize that we need God desperately in the moment. If you get that phone call that somebody is sick and in the hospital or have been given a bad diagnosis, we begin to pray immediately. If you find out that a friend has lost their job, 
we begin to pray immediately. We can easily identify with that. You even kind of hear the joke sometimes that as maybe a group of people are talking and that they're up against a situation, they don't know what to do, and someone will say, well, you know, maybe we should pray about it. And someone else will say, oh, it's gotten that bad, has it? We understand that when things get bad, we're supposed to go to prayer. But I think, here's the, here's the newsflash, here's the key. I think it's always that bad. We're always that desperate and dependent on God. We just forget it and don't realize it. I mean, this was certainly true for Israel. They'd been in captivity now for 70 years. That's the majority of a lifetime. 70 years. And things had been worse the whole time up till now, before all of them had been in captivity, before the temple hadn't been rebuilt. It had been that bad the entire time. They were in disgrace that whole time, and they needed God desperately. Even before that with the people of Israel, the same thing was true. If you think of the history of the people of Israel, it's really often more bad than it is good because they continually turn their backs on God. He continually brings judgment into their life. They turn back to God. He brings salvation, and they do it again. Nehemiah even recounts this later in chapter 9, verse 28, as he's praying to the Lord about how the Lord had rescued the people of Israel in the past. He says this, but as soon as they were at rest, as soon as they'd been brought out of judgment, as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time, over and over again, they were desperate for God. And we too, due to the sin that resides in us and this broken world, we are desperately in need. In fact, it often feels like we're on the cusp of losing a battle in this Christian life that we can't even possibly lose. But we are desperate for God to show up. We're desperate for every breath we take. We're desperate for our provision. We're desperate for our health, our jobs, our children, and even our fight against sin. We're even desperate for him to show up, even in our growth, even in our sanctification. We're a confessional church here at Village 7, which means we follow a confession that is a summary of the truths of Scripture. We have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we have the Shorter Catechism. Uh, many of you probably know some of these, but you get to the one that says, what is justification? Many of you probably know the answer to this, but justification, what is it to be made right before God, to be saved? It starts like this. Justification is a gift. It is an act of God's free grace, right? We get that. That's easy. If you go down a couple more, when it says, what is sanctification? It starts the exact same way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. Ezekiel 36, 27 says this, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Philippians 2.13 echoes this same idea. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. It's astounding to me how hard this is to accept, though. 
Because even our growth, even our sanctification is in God's hands. We are fully dependent on him for it, but we want control. It is hard for us to wrestle with this and realize, hey, if you want to be a good husband, it's not in your hands. If you want to be a good wife, it's not in your hands. If you want your children to grow up to love Jesus, it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. He causes us to do this. This really hit home to me just a couple weeks ago, I know. Uh, Kendra and I were having a fight. Um, don't worry, Singletons, it wasn't a catastrophic fight. Uh, it, it was kind of a small one, one of those normal fights. And, and we were in bed. We were trying to work it out. We were still kind of angry. Uh, Kendra was angry. I know I was angry. And, and we're sitting there. We kind of had exhausted words. And I remember, I, uh, I remember these words from Pastor Joseph Wheat, who did our premarital counseling 20 years ago. He's like, the job for, the, for you is to turn towards your wife and begin the process of reconciliation. The words were in my mind. I teach these to couples in premarital counseling now. I counsel couples in this. I knew exactly what to do. And I remember thinking clearly, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to. I'm still angry. I don't want to. I'm still angry. And I didn't. But about 30 seconds later, I remember I moved towards Kendra and I began the process of reconciliation. And, and it went pretty fast. It wasn't that big of a deal. We worked it out. And I remember being there thinking, wow, what in the world just happened there? I had literally just decided like 30 seconds ago, I'm not going to do this. I'm still angry. And I knew in that moment I had done the right thing, but I couldn't take a single piece of credit for it. It was all God. He had caused me to do the right thing. Is that hard to swallow? We are that desperate. I am that much of a mess and need God that badly. I want to lay down to be, I, I want to lay down a, a big qualification here. The Bible, our scriptures are full of instructions. They tell us to draw near to God. They're full of things that, it's full of things that need to be obeyed. The last thing I would want you to hear, because it would be unbiblical and a disservice to you that we are just supposed to be on the couch and wait for God to move and blame him when he doesn't. That is not the call of the scriptures at all. But it, you've probably heard these terms either or and both and. We tend to think of the world in the West in an either or situation. Either God is fully in control or I am. That's that's not it. That's not the way it is. It's hard for us to not think in those binary terms. But there's also both and. Both God is fully in control of our sanctification and he has called us to play a role in it and called us to effort. But for even for the sake of this morning, I would add to that both and phrase and I would call it both and but. Both God is fully in control and he's called us to a role in our sanctification to work out our salvation, but God is fully in control and we are desperate for him. And here's the thing, he is good and he loves us. And realizing that you need him will, can do the same thing to us that it did to Nehemiah. It brings us to our knees in prayer. It brings us to pray and he will be there to hear our prayer. And we want to pray that for ourselves, that the kingdom of God would be spreading in our own hearts and, it would, and we would be growing and it would be spreading in the hearts of each other and that all of us 
would be growing. To show that Nehemiah understands this even more, in our second point, Nehemiah goes to the Lord in repentance. Yes, he understands that we're totally dependent on God, but he also understands God is not to blame when we sin. And he comes forward in repentance for the people of Israel. And this is what is, is astounding. He certainly prays, he says that, that he has sinned, but he's, he prays in behalf of all of Israel using the we grammatical structure. He says, we have sinned and done what is right in your eyes. And he meant it. I think it would have been a lot easier and a lot more common for him to look out at the people of Israel. I don't think Nehemiah was the main problem here. I don't think he was the one constantly turning his back on God. It would have been easier for him to look out at the people in Israel and said, if you wouldn't have sinned, if you wouldn't have turned your back on God, if you wouldn't have done what was evil in his sight, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today. He could have blamed them, but he doesn't. He prays in repentance on behalf of all of them. This is, this is terribly convicting to me. Have you ever looked at another group of Christians or some other believers or another church and thought, who, and maybe they were doing something wrong or believing something wrong or who knows, and thought, if you guys weren't believing this way or acting this way or sinning in this way, the church wouldn't have the reputation that it does. Or if you weren't believing this way or acting this way, we wouldn't be in the situation we are. I've done that. I've been judgmental that way. What would it look like? I, I think it's astounding. It's convicting. What would it look like instead if we repented on their behalf as if we had sinned with them? What a posture of humility. What a kingdom-centered prayer. Because repentance, I believe, is one of the keys to the Christian life. Martin Luther said in the beginning of his 95 thesis, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. To come before the Lord, seeing our sins, seeing the sins of others, and saying, we're sorry. We have not depended on you. I've depended on other things. I've worshiped other things. I have sinned. Brian Chapel, a PCA pastor, says this of repentance and our dependence. Repentance is not so much a doing as a depending. It's not so much a striving for pardon as a posture of humility. In true repentance, we confess our total reliance on God's mercy. We acknowledge the inadequacy of anything we would offer God to gain his pardon. In true repentance, we rest upon God's grace rather than trying to do anything to deserve it. We're even desperate for our repentance, and we come before him dependent on his grace. New obedience, he says, follows true repentance as we continue this both and but. New obedience follows true repentance, but we put no hope for pardon in what we do. Repentance is not real if we have no intention of correcting our ways, but the correction is not the condition of our forgiveness. Where are we here? Are we living a life of repentance are you seeing the sin that makes you understand how wonderful Christ's purchase of your forgiveness is and coming before him in repentance? Are you repenting to, our, to your spouse? Are you repenting to your children? Are you repenting to your friend? 
excuse me, to your friends. Bob Flayhart, who preached here about a year ago, said, if you're not repenting, you're not growing. Are we repenting? Hope you see what I'm doing here a little bit. I've just told you our growth is in God's hands. Yeah, I'm giving you instructions on repentance for growth. It's both and, but. And lastly, Nehemiah prays for success. He prays for favor. I think it's easy to miss how scary the situation would have been for Nehemiah. It even says in chapter 2 that he was deathly afraid. He was coming before Artaxerxes, the most powerful person in the world at the time, to ask him for resources, for people, for money, and for himself to be able to go back to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding of the wall, to bring restoration to the people of God, therefore bringing restoration to the kingdom as Israel would grow and spread. Artaxerxes could have had him killed instantly for asking this. This wouldn't have been normal to come to the king and do this. It's why he was so scared. Or the king could have just said no, and that would have been the end of the story. Other kings had said no. Other kings had stood in the way. And this is an awesome example of kingdom-centered prayer, that, that we, the church, as we're out in the world trying to reach people, trying to serve our communities, would pray that we would have their favor, that they would see that we are loving them, and that they would want to hear our message, that they would want to get to know us, that they would have their hearts opened to the message of salvation. But again, what's more common, and I think what's more easy, is to not necessarily pray for favor, but to see ourselves in a posture of us versus them. Kind of to see ourselves against those who Nehemiah was praying that we'd have favor for. Nehemiah doesn't do this, certainly. He doesn't see, uh, he doesn't see the king as an enemy. He, he's been serving the king. He's been serving the king faithfully. He's his cupbearer. This is a very important position. It's a, it's a position of power. It's a position of trust. It's a position of service. And Nehemiah had been doing so faithfully. In fact, even after he found out before he went to the king, when it says he prayed, we know the dates that he gave us, he prayed for four months continually. He didn't just sit there and pray. He was, he was serving the king. He was doing the things he needed to do, but he was constantly in prayer. That when he went to the king, the king would give him favor. But instead, it, it, the culture around us, the air we breathe today, is way more. And not just Christianity, in every part of life, it's us versus them. No matter what you believe, it's us versus them. And that creeps into the church. It creeps into our hearts. I know it creeps into mine. New York Times contributor Tim Kreider points out, he points to in his writings an epidemic. He calls it an epidemic of rage. He talks about how many letters to the editor and comments on blog posts and YouTube videos and social media have contain a, a tone of thrilled vindication. He says, from people who have been vigilantly on the lookout, vigilantly on the lookout for something to be offended by. Some part of us loves feeling number one right and number two wronged. It's another one that's convicting. Some part of us loves to feel number one right and number one and number two wrong. I think he hits the nail on the head. 
here. Have you ever felt this? I know I have. Just walking into situations or conversations, especially in a church like this, that holds its theology and doctrine so closely. You begin talking to somebody. Instead of listening, you begin, you're looking for them to make a mistake. You're looking for a way to correct them. You're looking for a way to feel better about yourself because you see them in antagonistic terms. But instead, what would it look like to pray for their favor? We were just in Juarez about a week and a half ago. We took a mission trip of 23 from the college group down there, and we were serving in the city of Juarez. And one of the things we were doing was running an English camp at night. And we uh, would, would have the children from the neighborhood. They're planning a church in this neighborhood that we, we were working with this church. And they went around and we called all the children in the neighborhood to come. And, and we teach them English. And we teach them Bible. We do crafts and sports and just love these kids. As well as we share the gospel with the, with the parents and usually the mothers who show up. But in the beginning of the days, the first couple of days, we spent time in the park that we would be doing this English camp in. And uh, when you picture a park, it's, it's not like a park here um, in a poor city, like whereas there's no grass, the parks are dirt. And in this particular park, it had trees, a couple sidewalks, and, and mostly dirt. So we went into the park to clean it up a couple of days before the camp would start. And we went in and we picked up thousands of pieces of broken glass on the ground. We picked up trash and threw it away. And one of the, the kind of odd things that we had an opportunity to do was paint the trees. And if you've ever seen this before, other cultures, I think other parts of the country even do this, they paint the trees white, from maybe a third of the way up to the trunk to about here. And it, it's, a, it's a mix of like calcium and sodium and they, they paint it white to protect it from the sun and keep the bugs off it. It's, it's considered something that beautifies a neighborhood, that makes a park look better, that, that shows that people care. But in this neighborhood, people hadn't had the money nor the time to paint these trees. And so we, we bought the stuff, we made the mixture, and we're painting trees. And I remember I'm off in the corner of the park. I'm painting a tree. It's 100 degrees out. It's pretty monotonous. And so I was thinking about this passage, and I began to pray this exact same prayer. That the neighborhood, the people of Juarez, would be favorable towards the church that we were planting there, that the neighborhood would see what we're doing, what the church is doing, and want to be involved, see that we care, would get plugged into the church, would hear the gospel. And as I prayed that, I mean, it was just sort of a great time to lift up the people of Juarez, to lift up the people of that neighborhood. And as I, as I was doing it, I noticed that certain people that lived there, some of the, the, the Mexican people, if, if they knew English and they saw that we were Americans, they'd walk by and they'd say, thank you, in sort of their broken English. Thanks for doing this. I was seeing my prayer being answered. Later, I found out in another part of the park, there was a wall that was covered in graffiti and had been so since 2012, since before that, when the violence in Juarez had ended. And students were scraping off all the paint. And nobody had done that forever. And a woman came out and she brought out Fanta and a three liter. Yes, they have three liters of Coca-Cola and gave it to the students. And they were, and she was so thankful that they were helping the city. And she wanted to know more about the church and she wanted to come to the English camp that night. And I know lots of other people were praying. I don't take credit for this, but a prayer for the favor of the people is a beautiful thing. And we see through it, the kingdom of God spread. We can admit our dependence on God. We can come before him in repentance. We can pray for favor because of the gospel. Because when we go before our king, 
Unlike Nehemiah, who went before his king in fear, looking for favor, when we go before our king, the favor is already ours. In verse 10, as Nehemiah is praying, he says, They are your servants, speaking of the people of Israel, and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. If you have put your trust in Christ, if you are in him, this is you. This is us. We are his redeemed. We're the ones spoken of in Ezekiel 36 that I read earlier. That God would give us a new heart, that we, he would put his spirit in us, and that he would cause us to walk in his statutes. We are his. We are in Christ. If you've put your faith in Christ, this is true of you. If you have yet to put your faith in Christ, if you're, if you're here and you're just checking out Christianity or you're wondering what it's about, this is the offer for you. To be made new. To have his favor. After all, that's what grace is. It's his favor that we didn't deserve. And the scripture tells us that in Christ we stand in grace. We are completely dependent on God for everything. And we completely have God for everything. We have his favor. We have relationship. We have his love. And it's, we must see the beauty of Jesus in this. We cannot miss Jesus here because on the cross, Jesus, who had had the Father's favor forever, who had had the perfect love, who had had the perfect intimacy, he gave it up as he took on our sins so that we could have God's favor forever. That's the only reason we have it. It's because Christ died so that we could have it. And as it always goes with the gospel, this gets better and better. I could go on for hours on each layer. The gospel is more rich. But Jesus here is the perfect fulfillment of Nehemiah. As Nehemiah interceded for the people of God, Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, is interceding for us all the time. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he being Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus, it's right here, always lives to make intercession for you. Do we always live for anything? I mean, think of those phrases, always live. Jesus always lives for you to make prayer, to pray for you. Wrestle with this. You know your lives. You know your struggles. You know where you need God. Let it sink in that Jesus always lives to intercede for you. This is the gospel. And as we understand it, how can we not pray for the people around us to hear this message and to respond to it and to have favor towards us? When you understand this, you can repent of your sins because there is no danger of rejection here. You can come before the Lord and enjoy that he has saved you and be able to repent. When you know he is praying for you all the time, you can admit that you need him desperately. And we can join together to pray that the kingdom would spread in our hearts and to each other and to the uttermost parts of the world. Join me in prayer now as we close. 
Heavenly Father, what a joy it is to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that in you, you live always to intercede for us, that we are your redeemed, that you cause us to walk in your statutes. We worship you. We praise you this morning for it. We thank you for it, Lord. I pray for each of us that that would reside deeply in our hearts, that it would hit home deeply, that it would change the way we pray, the way we act, the way we obey, the way we interact with others. What a joy it is, Lord. I pray that we would see you as glorious. Jesus, I pray that we would see you as glorious. And we pray this in your name. Amen.